Good evening and welcome to episode 109 of the Cood Street Podcast. After a break last week, Gary's travelled to Burlington, Massachusetts, somewhere in some hellish hotel strip mall, to attend Redacon 23, where late in the evening, during a rare break in their hectic programming schedules, he managed to persuade convention guests of honour Caitlin R. Kiernan and longtime friend of the podcast Peter Straub to join us to discuss whatever might come up during the course of a pleasant hour between friends and colleagues. Good evening, everybody. Hi, Jonathan. (laughs) It just never segues neatly. It's wonderful to have you with us again, Peter. Uh, hello, Jonathan. <laughs> and, wonder- and wonderful to have you join us for the first time ever, Caitlin. Caitlin's uh, yeah. never done a podcast. I've never done a podcast. Haven't you? I, I, I feel like one way or another we've been corresponding for years yeah, or something now. And... Not like this. I, I heard the one that I think you and Peter and Gary did that talked about the Drowning Girl, but I've never actually oh. done a podcast. Oh, wonderful. Which is okay. weird because I'm about to start doing a podcast weekly. <laughs> called Ant Beast Marsh Home Companion, and um, so it's setting everything up for me, but I've never done this. Okay, well, you'll take to it, all right. (laughs) You'll be great. I mean, isn't that basically you reading classic stories or something? Yeah, I'm just going to read, like, old weird fiction every week, so old stuff. Oh, Oh. what's your first selection? I have no idea. i still got, like, a week, so I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Great God's that, that's a good, in fact, this was sort of my um, tribute to Arthur Macon tonight. Was this? Oh, was like, okay. Oh, yeah, right. Just, that's really good. Yeah. Here's something we can all check this out because everybody pronounces the name differently. And Macken, finally, somebody Macon. Somebody told Macken. me. Somebody told me that he liked the fact that his name rhymes with Blacken. Oh. Macken. And really? therefore he, Macken? he he apparently pronounces Macken, and it's a Welsh Welsh name. Uh, it's not an English name. So I'll say. You said today during your reading, you said Crowley. Now I've always said Crowley, and I've and and I've been corrected repeatedly as Crowley. Well, and in America we say Crowley. John Crowley calls it Crowley. But I like Crowley. It's like John, <laughs> John Crowley says Crowley. English people say Crowley, but that is a but English people are talking about native okay, to him. Is it Alistair? Alistair. Uh, or Alistair, Alistair, please. Okay. Alistair. But even so though I always heard Alistair Crowley pronounced Crowley as well. Said, and, uh, Golden uh, Dawn. Um, <laughs> William Yates. Uh, Bill John, Yates. What, what were you saying? I was, I was going to say, I've never heard even Alistair Crowley pronounced Crowley. So I'm kind of taken aback that anybody would have considered that John Crowley would have been anything other than Crowley. Well, I think well, I'm lost. Well, John Crowley, it's idiomatic. The, 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 point is john crowley we can ask and he's going to say crowley he is that's yes. what he said supposedly crowley might be dead so well, <laughs> oh. Oh, but we could founder on pronunciation forever it's like my my 12 year old daughter's school teacher managed when she was about eight to convince her that she must pronounce our surname differently from the way that we do and she will not listen to us now she's convinced that uh it's strawn not strawn for some, and just it's like nope, that's it, and it's because the teacher said so. So it's so much more euphonious. <laughs> I like Strawn better than Strawn, but you know, it is derived from, I think, the German originally from a Strachen kind of a thing. So <laughs> anyway, I keep getting people coming up to me even here saying, "Oh, you do that podcast with Strahan." Strahan. <laughs> yeah, I've had that. Well, yeah, that's an athlete, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's okay. Yeah, is, so, yes, it's a footballer, isn't it? Michael Strahan or something? Songwriter. So, yes. <laughs> so anyway, what, you guys are at ReaderCon. I've never been. What makes it so special and fun? Is it special and fun? 
the meet the pros party. No. <laughs> so, I, I heard that that's it, it sounded chaotic from the description you, you, you gave us of it you know beforehand. So is is a, a unique little custom that I, I actually don't take part in. But the rest of, of, of ReaderCon is uh, kind of distinguished because it's um, it's un, it's unlike others in that it doesn't have even a faintly fanish element. There are there are intelligent people who like uh, the, the the books on offer and the and the kind of writing being considered, but very intelligently and. Um, uh, the the nice guests of honor as mm-hmm. witness Caitlin Kieran and myself incredible yeah, and, no, really, I agree in conventions pretty much all and Sonia Tafe convinced me to come to ReaderCon um, four years ago when I first moved to Providence and I was like I don't like doing conventions and she said no this one is very very different and it is it's like you know it's actually a convention for readers yeah um, you know we're not all um, Oh God! I did Dragon Con in Atlanta, which grew <laughs> to obscenely gigantic proportions from the first time I did it over 11 years, <laughs> and it finally got to where it was about washed-up television stars and the next big blockbuster uh, movie. Yep. So it's like the San Diego Comic Con, and the the writing panels just dried up and vanished. Mm. And like most science fiction conventions, this is a convention about and you know a large percentage of the the people here are writers yeah. it's a small convention it feels like it's bigger this year yes it is it's got 600 people really yeah. that, that's I think big it's at 500 usually it's usually yeah. it, 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 it's crowded because it's in one hotel and you really allowed to escape no um, there's nowhere to go no to except all. when they kick uh, when, well, never mind okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fire alarm or something. Somebody, yeah. Yeah, somebody did pull a fire alarm. But one of the things that I think characterizes it more than most conventions, and as much as I, I admire as much as the next person, you know, um, hand crocheted Klingons. <laughs> if you go into the book room here, it's all books. Yes. There are people selling costumes and swords and plastic and, helmets. Yeah, signed photographs right. or anything. I have to say, whilst half of the internet now howls in outrage at our <laughs> love of the written word and our, you know, you know, desire to have a space where this kind of thing can happen, I was looking at the program to try and get a feeling for it. I have to say, it's the first program that I've seen in many years where you go, "Gee, I actually wish I was there to go to the program." And then, yeah. it, and then it crossed my mind: it, when you're the subject of the program, as you both are this weekend, is that a little bit intimidating or a little bit off-putting to have? a really potentially high-powered conversation going on right in front of you about your own work? Or is it invigorating? It hasn't happened to me as bad yet as it happened to Peter. Yeah, it did, it did happen to me twice, and it was very um, uh, gratifying. I'm on a panel talking about how important <laughs> Peter is to me, and he's sitting there, and it's, it's weird. Uh, yeah. And then tomorrow, there's a panel on my work, and I'm and I'm like, screw it, I'm gonna be sitting there. So you know, exactly. I watch my language too. Mm-hmm. Now, is that one of those things, Caitlin, where you don't have any choice but to be there because of the way the conventions run, or you can't resist being there because it's one of those things happening, and you kind of have to be there? It it, it is um it's it's very much it, it's 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 extremely and absolutely voluntary. Nobody's forcing us to to go to these panels to, about about our work. It's uh, but I suppose it's much more thoughtful and polite in a way to go. It was and, such a nice thing to have 
things and I might have to tell them to shut up. So. <laughs> well, I was going to say, there must be a dreadful temptation as well. If you're sitting there and they're discussing the works of Caitlin Kiernan or the works of Peter Straub, to kibitz, to kind of go, they're going, well, as we all know, in The Drowning Girl, when this happens, this is what it means. And you can sit there and go, well, yeah, nah. No, no I'm sorry, no. Neil Gaiman told me once, and this this was a long time ago, that there, were, there was trouble at ICFA for just this very reason. <laughs> because it had been an exclusively sort of academic conference where writers began, more and more writers began going, mm-hmm. and Neil actually did, I think, stand up at some point and say, no, actually, that's not what I meant at all. And feathers that's were like, ruffled. Oh, boy. So, you know, it's like... I haven't, you know, I can't, I don't think I do that. It sounds like something I do, but I don't think I do it. Uh, I would just sort of grunt my teeth. Winston. Well, I had a, I was at ICFA, as a matter of fact, was where I think. Maybe I see, uh, that's interesting. Uh, well, I've been there, and I know exactly what Neil was talking about. And I'm trying to think, it may have been Joe Haldeman or somebody. <laughs> no, it was Guy K. Yeah. Guy K was at ICFA, and I'm, I don't think I'm mentioning the name of whoever was giving a paper about his work which was com- a complete fantasy of Guy K. writing something about Native American mythology, which huh. it turns out he had never heard of. <laughs> There's a paper on Guy, and Guy is in the audience, and Guy is, Guy is in the audience because, because I, was, uh, I was on the panel or something, and he was, he, he was, there, he was there to hang out with me, basically. Gotcha. This woman, who had never met him before, thought, wow, he's coming to hear my paper about it. <laughs> and he was extraordinarily polite. And at, at, uh, at the end of it, he didn't say anything to her, but he said to the rest of us, um, I had none of that even remotely in mind, and if she wants to go with it, fine. You know, yeah. another, another reading of my work, and who's to say wrong? Yeah. We could get into reader response theory and intentionalism and how much I hate that, and um, I've been sort of waging a war online against that recently. But the people who think, well, it doesn't matter what your intent is, hmm. Um, it's the the book doesn't exist until it's read anyway, and I'm just always like, oh look, I can do this on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Learn this on your own podcast. The FCC does not control what we say. Yeah, well, we can't lose our podcast. <laughs> 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 Let's talk about The Drowning Girl, which, you know, you sort of, well, you say it's a memoir. I mean, it's subtitled a memoir, but there are lots of, you know, uh, there are lots of 18th century novels that are subtitled memoirs and fictions and biographies mm-hmm. and that sort of thing as well. Well, um, my, my, my publisher actually demanded, and we had a little argument, that a memoir be left off the cover. Ah. He said, if you don't do this, it's going to wind up in nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And I finally relented and said, okay, I think as people are that stupid. I see your point. Um, it's true. So, um, well, okay, there are, two expo- there are two answers for that. First of all, like the red tree, um, I've, I've said that the book is, is like, I've, I've called it fictionalized autobiography. You know, fictionalized autobiography. Mm-hmm. Um, the Drowning Girl, e- much more so even than mm-hmm. the red tree. Although the red tree, I, I almost felt like I was trying to redeem my the version of me in the red tree by writing the drowning girl. Mm-hmm. Um, the drowning girl though was more personal, and so a mm-hmm. memoir. On the one hand, well, it's Indian Morgan Phelps memoir. Yes, it is. Clearly, mm-hmm. it's literally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Since it's also a memoir I'm writing, and and you know, I, I don't want to get, 
I don't want to sound too pretentious, but um, it's never stopped me before. But, <laughs> like this is some this writing was so personal. I keep talking about this this weekend, but it was so personal that um, after it took me two years to write the book, and when I was done with it, um, I was finally done with it. And Catherine started noticing that I was beginning to have more problems than usual. Um, and my psychiatrist caught on. And it's like every time I would come back for another round of edits, I'd just start losing it again. Mm. And finally, I, I said, look, I'm not, I went to my agent and I said, no more books like this for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm tired of, I, I've kind of studied everything before the Red Tree anyway. Mm-hmm. I know it was weird, but. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I finally figured out how to write a novel with yeah. but I do it by scraping myself out and so I'm writing I'm going to write the. I'm writing this weird series making um, mm-hmm. beginning with a book called Blood Oranges mm-hmm. I got a three book deal on that and I'm doing a, a series of YA novels called Blue Canary mm-hmm. which is kind of like Nancy Drew with Demons so right. <laughs> Like for a few years, I'm just gonna do stuff that's fun to write and stay away from the the melon balling my soul thing. Yeah. <laughs> but do you feel you'll come back to it? Well, and I'm still doing it in short fiction. Yeah. I'm still doing it, and ironically, the comic I'm doing right now is still dark and serious. It's all dark. It's what? just that mm. it's and the difference. The, the the subterranean book is Confessions of a oh, Five Confessions of a Five Chamber Five Chamber Heart, and that's just yeah. and it, so far, I, it's like this is like um, we're still only in like the twenty, like twenty-seven to forty something of Serenian Digest, and I just put out issue number seventy-nine. Mm-hmm. Um, we're never going to catch up on that, but it is mm-hmm. mostly erotica. Okay, and it's really, really dark stuff. But most of it was written like in two thousand six, two thousand seven. Mm-hmm. Um, this is old stuff, but I'm still writing. You know, that stuff's still very, very dark, and it's still very personal. But it's not like the Red Tree and the Drowning Girl, mm. which just, you know, I've never, ever, ever writing a book cried. Um, it even sounds ridiculous saying it, but there were two days writing The Drowning Girl where I had to stop writing mm. because I couldn't stop crying. Yeah. And that's how personal that book is to me. And and why, you know, I don't know. I don't know how people, I do know how people perceive the book, and it's not the way I perceive the book. Um, I was trying to say some stuff on, on the panel about Peter's work today about ghost stories mm-hmm. and why ghost stories are important to me and why they are two very different books. Um, I took so I, I shamelessly stole so mm-hmm. much from Peter for the Drowning Girl um, in good ways. Very nice, I thought. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I thought that there was an echo of Ava. And um, also there's a scene near the end of the novel where Eva Canning is stand Imp wakes up and Eva's standing at the window. She's why are you standing at the yeah. window? She says, I'm uh, she says you're a ghost. No, oh, okay. Um, I think is the line because it's different line. So but I asked permission first. I said, Peter, mm. if I do a slight play on this line, will you Matt, will you mind? Because <laughs> There's another thing I noticed because you, because Peter was reading from his new novel, so I can talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was reading. I was shocked, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> he shamelessly stole this business of a painting from Caitlin. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> he know about that. I want to do. I'm to do oh, I sneak in and read your diary. 
There's a doctoral dissertation to be written on magical pain. I mean, let's hand magical pain. And we did yeah. a we did a um if you go to caitlinrkiernan.com and click on the trailer for Drowning Girl, we did a panel tonight that Peter kindly came to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's great. Where Kyle Cassidy, we did it all started with me and Kyle Cassidy, and mm-hmm. we wound up raising four thousand dollars to do a, a book trailer because I hate book trailers. Huh. And the idea was we were going to make a good book trailer, and we shot on location. We hired um, actors, uh, professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We and I'm very happy with what came out. There's, you know, there's still photographs. The reason this came up was the painter mm-hmm. um, in the book, um, George Philip Saltonstall. Um, out of the blue, I get this painting from Michael Zulin. Mm-hmm. It is the painting from the book. It's I mean, a painting from the book. It is the painting. Mm. It's yeah. the drowning girl. Amazing. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, I, I didn't even, I don't know Michael. I didn't know Michael Zulin. Well, it turns out Kyle did, and Kyle had given him the book and he had read it and he sent me, he did this painting. And wow. it was the painting. Huh. And then he did another one. It started right, sending me sketches that Saltonstall huh. had done. And so finally Kyle went oh. to his house and shot a portrait of him as salt and stall and i'm doing a, a centipede press limited that'll mm. be out in two in 2014 because we're doing the red tree first oh wonderful and the picture of zulia salt and stall with zulie's paintings will be in that book oh that's for them that, that was just freaky that was like i'm holding it in my hands and that, and, yeah yeah and, it, and he just like pulled it out of my head your novel is retroactively being its sources are created (laughs) it's it's, it's coming out into the world and that's more like yeah well I'm glad it happened very confirming and you you communicated the idea of that painting extremely thoroughly and and, and so Zuli and I have now sort of become pen pals and Hmm. um, pen pals do we have pen pals anymore (laughs) Involved. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it's one of the things that the followers uh, uh, mm-hmm. about the, the discussion that we were having actually uh, on the panel about Peter because Joe Haldeman showed up, and I've said the same thing about Joe Haldeman in a completely different context than I would say about either one of you. I mean, Joe Joe's reputation is as a hard science fiction writer, but mm. he's written more about art than he has about war. Huh. I mean, he's written about Shakespeare's sonnets. He's written about uh, Hemingway. He's, he's written about Hemingway and that sort of thing. Yeah. And I'm thinking both, um, well, especially in The Drowning Girl and, well, any number of things, but I'm thinking about the smell of, of but both of you write a lot about art. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, yeah. that yeah. especially happen. like writing about film, lost film. Well, that's the other thing, the, the, the flickering. Yeah. Sort of, and the, the literal some of that came from Ramsey Campbell. I like ancient images so much yeah. I just kept wanting to do that um, and actually back when I was just starting to write and I'm not going to name names or organizations or anything but a rather horrid writer <laughs> said you should never write about paintings I can't see it you can't possibly communicate and I said this is the most idiotic thing I've uh, ever heard we so. had this big flame this is like well. on the internet before the world wide web and um it was really kind of, it was one of the stupidest things I'd ever heard. <laughs> it was because we were actually having a conversation about Kathy Koja's skin, mm-hmm. which is a favorite of me back. Right. And um, yeah. she said, well, I hated it because I couldn't cultures. And I'm like, 
what? Mm-hmm. You know, wait a minute. So you should never, you, you, you can't really describe the color red. It was just insane. If I told you the person's name, this would be a much more amusing story. Okay. Well, somewhere maybe you'll hear this. In the <laughs> <laughs> anyway. It's like saying you can't read. But it, the whole found manuscript, or the artist yeah. who doesn't actually exist until somebody goes and makes them exist, mm. um, yeah, it's fascinating. It's like, especially film. I've written, like, I wrote mm. a short story. Um, okay, not that story, because I'm not going to get into that. But I, I've written a lot of stories about unfinished films, found films, mm-hmm. films that might exist or might not exist. Um, but just because it's a subject I love in real life, so mm-hmm. it winds up. I keep writing about. Yeah, it. I've used uh, um, invented films now and again, especially in the throat. But um, and in ghost story. And in ghost story, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Singapore Sal, starring the notorious Vicali. Uh, um, and I liked what you said about that on that panel, that there's this moment in which you're reading and you think, oh, my God, there she is. Yes, and she's, and she's, she's there. She's flickering and away. Her, and she's looking at you even if she's not looking at you, but maybe she is looking yeah, at you. Yeah, she, she probably is. <laughs> this reminds me of other, of other sorts of film, i.e. old home movies that sometimes occur in fiction, in a very, uh, in a way, I find very moving. If if you've been following the history of a family and and various people in the family, some of whom may be criminals or not, or who have done horrible things, discovered or not, and then one of the main characters discovers a, a an old reel of film and he finds a projector, he puts it on up up, and he's screening it on the wall, and we, standing behind the character's shoulder look and see the whole movie of some guy come onto a diving board, leap off the diving board, swim into the pool, a woman in a swimsuit standing standing up, watches them and applauds, and you say, oh my God, that's them. That's back when it all happened. Mm-hmm. Back when they were passionate and stupid and cruel. <laughs> and when we all had money. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just... Um, uh, well, there was... Uh... Uh, I mean, I, I, there are certain moods that that I'm a sucker for. I suppose every reader has these things, and, and those kinds of images, where there's you suddenly you suddenly start creating a narrative which may or may not be there because of a sequence of images. There's a um, mm. Peter Beagle story, and Jonathan, I think this was in your year's best or not, or maybe it was in the best. The rabbi's help, the rabbi's hobby. Yeah, from the year's best and from Eclipse originally. And the rabbi's <laughs> well, and, and and this is again. It's a story, which is initially a very funny story about a kid who's obviously Peter Beagle studying for his bar mitzvah and mm. utterly failing to learn Hebrew. <laughs> but his rabbi is obsessed with old magazines like Look Magazine, no, no Saturday Evening Post, from the teens and twenties, because oh, he's discovered that in all these family portraits and mm. sort of uh, summer paintings, there was this. There's one woman that seems to recur oh, year gosh. after year oh, after year. Yeah. Yeah. And he becomes obsessed. She must have been real. She couldn't have been. And so he starts finding out which artist did the covers for yeah. these. Uh, the whole thing, it just goes off the rails and becomes this brilliant story. You know, I ought to have read that, and I haven't. I would love to have read that. <laughs> well, Eclipse, which I Eclipse may have been in that anthology and not read that. I think you I were, yeah. <laughs> that was the same one yeah. Horses was in? 
no, it might have been the one before. It was the volume before. Uh, the Tidal Forces, which was another extraordinary story. Which meant. I, I was reading this morning, I mean, absolutely no idea what I was going to read. I wound up reading my introduction collection <laughs> and then reading a very short story because I had no idea. Tidal Forces was one of the two maybes, and mm-hmm. I didn't have time to read Tidal Forces. So. Uh-huh. I never imagined that story would get the attention it's gotten. Well, it, it, it's interesting because um, most people don't seem to realize that it had actually been published the year before, really, in uh, Serenia Digest. Uh, do you sort of get frustrated that stuff get, doesn't get paid that close attention to you when it's published there? Well, I think, first of all, far more of it's getting attention than I ever thought would. Mm. I saw Serenia Digest. As, it's a shame that you know piles and piles and piles of stories will never see print anywhere. But they're they're mostly now getting reprinted, which is, you know, somebody hmm. says, I want a story, and it needs to be a new story. And I say, well, I'm sorry, but I have absolutely no time. And they say, well, okay, then show me what you've got. Well, I've got a bunch of stuff. And, yeah. and it's starting to get um, Oh, man, I had something very specific about, oh, um, when they did the Ammonite Violin and Others, which is the first Serenian Digest collection, hmm. it got nominated for a world. Fantasy Award and a Shirley Jackson Award and was on the cover of Publishers Weekly <laughs> and I'm like, this was Sirenia Digest. Mm-hmm. So I can't exactly say, thanks to Bill Schaefer, I can't exactly say it's not getting attention. Um, I'm really happy with the way that's going. It's, um, never mind the subscribers and it's a nice, you know, it, it's sort of the, the bread and butter right now because you never know what's going to fall through and what's mm-hmm. going to not fall through. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. steady work. It has to be done every month, no matter what. Is that sorry? No, you go ahead, Peter. Your um, uh, blog, live journal. I'm just stunned by how much work you do, Caitlin. It's just you, you seem tireless. You see, it's what you have to do. It's like there's no other source of income. Yeah. And and I can't. And it isn't getting. I keep waiting till like can't come up with any more ideas or the writing really starts to suck and it seems to be going the other way I'm getting more ideas and yeah, I, that's I, really cool. I think only in the last 10 years at least have I become a decent writer and really only in the last 5 years and so um, I just keep writing and so, and, that's and great it's not, it's it, not my first it, love it has worked but it's what I do mm-hmm. um, yes terrifying I mean, go to the some, whoever keeps up with my Wikipedia pages, and mm. there's a bio, there's a bibliography of Serenia Digest, and it's like, oh my God, I've done almost, I've done over 200 stories. Wow. Digest. Or the story that's in the souvenir book, In View of Nothing, huh. science fiction story, was originally Ser- Galapagos and Tidal Forces. Yeah. Galapagos, I wrote for you. Yeah. That's Jonathan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a, a tip tree finalist thing, so huh. that was cool. Too. That's lovely. Yeah. So, I'm, like I was talking about, the, the reason I say we should throw the Shirley Jackson stones at the winner is just because I've never won yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's only a matter of time. I'm <laughs> We should clarify that Shirley Jackson stones have no medical meaning. <laughs> <laughs> 
nominees, I was one of the judges this year, so I, I don't get them. But the nominees get yeah. these little sort of they, some beautiful things, polished really stones. So, oh. Yeah, just and and then you start thinking about the lottery and you think, uh oh, <laughs> <laughs> idea. It's neat. It's like it's in its own way. It's even I think cooler than the neat little. I've got two of the I didn't win the World Fantasy Award pens now. <laughs> Oh yeah. Um, I love those. They're, They're like, great. I, I love that when an award gives you something, even you know, it's the concept. I still think this thing. Every twice now I've been to world science fiction conventions, and George Martin uh, gives out Hugo Loser badges. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 oh I've God. got a Hugo Loser badge, but I got it from George R. Martin was like, <laughs> was it Susan Lucci? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Susan Lucci on, um, that, that is the, the, all my that, children. All my children. Thing I knew about the right there, and yeah. I know your history with, um, oh, uh, One Life to Live. Has it been canceled now? One Life to Live was zipped off the air and a but brutal were, like, act. Right at the end, you were I, I was on like five times over like two, two or three years. As it was so much fun. Blind detective. Pete. Browsed. Mr. Pete Browst. Which sounds like a sausage Browst. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and Browst. Yeah. Okay, Jonathan, say something. Well, I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to ask Caitlin a question that I probably shouldn't ask on the podcast, but I'm going to, on the, on the proviso that you can say, I don't want to answer this question. Because I oh. have asked it in email before, but I, I just... I keep coming back to it when I think about the book. At a certain point in The Drowning Girl, Imp and Abilene go to Eva Canning's graveyard, uh, gravestone. And the, Abilene's last name changes suddenly as she's referred to as Abilene Canning. And I've always wondered if that was deliberate or a typographical error in the book. I wish I'd that question. Okay, no, we can skip across it. It's okay. I just... Just so as you know, it, it sits there. When I think about the book, it's part of the question that one of the questions that comes back to me again and again, because it's it's an intriguing kind of implication in the text. Wait, how? Okay. We, well, you don't have, no, 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 you don't have to answer it. It's okay if you don't want to. That's all. And it's not if 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 I don't answer it, everyone will know the answer. No, 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 no. We can. I I can cut this bit out if you'd like. No. <laughs> <laughs> We actually go to the cemetery. There's really a crow perched on the tombstone, just like in the book, being a cliche, sitting up there. <laughs> and and no, that that was a, that was. Actually, yep. That was. Actually, we're not really a high tech podcast. Okay, that's a, a that is a mistake that I didn't. How mm. that having been said, identity and imp's memory of past and future, well, past and present, is so fluid in the book. Mm. That when it was pointed out, and it's been pointed out to me by several yeah. people, probably be changed in the next edition, um, as will some other things. I'm almost hesitant because it actually it it casts something in an. It's trying to create such an unreliable narrator, mm. and mm -hmm. um, and well, suddenly Eve, suddenly Avalon's name changes, and isn't that very symbolic? That suddenly we're talking about Avalon Canning. Mm. Eva Canning, and then and suddenly Abilene is Abilene again, not Eva. Hmm. And and so my answer is, well, it was an accident, but it was a. I think it wasn't a disaster of an accident. Okay. Um, 
I think it works. If you, you know, I've had people who are like, ah, you screwed up, but and mm-hmm. I've had people who are like, you did this on purpose, didn't you? That's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I must say, I, I, I'm very, very happy with an answer that said it wasn't necessarily deliberate, but it creates intriguing possibilities because, to me, when I read the book. That's what the book, in some ways, has embedded at its heart, and intriguing ambiguity. This the idea that you're immersed in this unreliable narration, and so you have to kind of go with it and take what is implied through the text right to the end of the story, and so to have some something else which casts an alternate interpretation on places is that can actually be really valuable and rewarding. You can't see me nodding my head. <laughs> no, I can't. Yeah. But you also, when you're dealing with an unreliable narrator who tells us right up front that she's an unreliable narrator, then you have to wonder, is her unreliability reliable? reliable. Okay, never well, mind. Or, <laughs> or, or, or is it self-serving? Is a lie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I'm on a panel that I think is my fault tomorrow um, about unreliable narrators. And my my thesis is that there is no such thing as a reliable narrator. Yeah, Simply that's because right. Because no one can tell you what they had for dinner mm-hmm. a month ago on yeah. Thursday, yeah. on whatever day of the month. Um, and it's just I'm I feel like there's a lot more to be gained by just stepping out since I'm I didn't use first person narrative forever mm-hmm. because for the scary problem uh-huh. I didn't want this feeling of artifice like who are you talking to and how do you remember this yeah. and why are you saying and why are you saying this, this? Yeah. and um, a great example Lovecraft story Pickman's model mm-hmm. and when I wrote Pickman's other model part of it was res- to respond to that and fill in the gaps and there's a re- we know why. Um, the story is being told, why Elliot's telling the mm-hmm. story. Um, and this is important to me. I want, when I, the, I think the first time I did it was a novella for Bill Schaefer called The Dry Salvages, and it was really important mm-hmm. to me that the Bradbury weather may have come first, but it was really important in both cases that the reader know who's being, why this is being written, how it's being written, um, who might read it someday, or maybe nobody will read it, but it's being written down. And the red tree. Um, I have relaxed, and most of my short fiction now, I, I often don't explain um, mm-hmm. who is being written, but I still consider them unreliable narrators. I'm an unreliable narrator. Well, I was going to say that's the next thing. Clearly, I got even. I got Abilene's name wrong. <laughs> I can't even get last name right. <laughs> Armitage. All right. <laughs> <laughs> one of the best books. I'm, I'm, I'm going into academic mode for a minute, but one of the best books I still know about fiction is by Lane Booth, the writer of fiction. Brilliant book. And yep. which he talked not only about the reliability of narrators, but about this layer which he calls the implied author. Another yeah, another. That's right. Narrator is the way the author presents him or herself through whatever fiction they construct. Yep. Um, and every author is Heming. The most obvious examples, I suppose, would be people like Oscar Wilde or Hemingway. Or um, okay, I have not read this book, but this is interesting. I came up with a concept that I talked about in the blog a lot called the inter-author. Um, it sounds close. The mm. inter-author is well. I call the narrator in the book the inter-author. Now I'm the person. T- telling the story, but the person telling the story for me, the narrator, who's the narrator? Am I the narrator? Mm-hmm. Or is, in this case, 
India Morgan Phelps, the narrator. And the truth is, it's she, a third person. Yeah, there's mm. like somewhere in between her and me. There's That's, there's something else. If if you know, yeah. it's like there's a translation somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> this is beginning to sound weirdly metaphysical. There's a tone, but it's really uh, accurate. Yeah, it's very close to what the, the implied author is. The implied author is the author that you want the world to think mm. created India. Yes. You create somebody who created India. It's, it's, it's in, in a sense, it's like a, another layer of armor uh, between the author and, and, and the world, I suppose. And we need everyone we can get. Well, I mean, there are, I was thinking, it's interesting what came up today after we had, I was on, I was at one panel and on one panel about Peter's fiction. Once people got past Ghost Story, which deserves all the attention it gets, <laughs> people started, there was a surprising amount of focus on stories like Bunny is Good Bread and uh, yeah. the Juniper Tree mm. and really disturbing stories in which uh, I suppose there are layers of armor between you and those stories. It couldn't prove by me. I don't. Uh, the I don't know if there were. I I don't know if there's that much armor actually. Um, in 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 Bunny is Good Bread, there will be more because that was written as a section of a novel, right. and uh, I had uh, fictional characters in mind who were who pre-existed, and I was um, I had a certain technique in mind. Uh, the point at which the, the narrator's mind just breaks and dissolves. And I, I, I knew I wanted to represent that um, by using a style of a, of, of a poet named Ron Hilleman, whose, whose poems are like long, long bits of prose made up of completely disconnected sentences, one after the other, mm. which are nonetheless very um, interesting to read. And, and 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 worth reading and uh, powerful in their own way. Um, I couldn't do it as in a way that as perfectly disconnected as Ron Silliman, but n nonetheless there is an effect of dissolution. And the juniper tree was much more a matter of me trying to sink a mine shaft down into some area that I had never examined, never thought of certainly didn't remember uh, and just wanted to investigate because it had occurred to me as a good possibility. Mm -hmm. um, and so yeah, I spent a summer doing that. And I, I, I knew it was going to be about the childhood of a person who turns out to be a writer, a writer who in, uh, in the uh, you know, proving of his life turns out to be a good deal more damaged than I am, but nonetheless is kind of a, a second cousin of mine. I don't know if you call that armor or not. Um, I, what, 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 what means that it, what tells me it wasn't very armored was when I wrote the story, I, I closed up the manuscript book I written it in, and I put it on a shelf and I didn't look at it for another year. You know? Okay. <laughs> that year was armored. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. back to, I, I don't Back to the drowning girl in mm -hmm. armor. Yeah. I, I think it was, I think one reason it was so hard at the end was that I systematically went through and tried to tear away all the armor. And to the point that um, yeah. there's, a, there's a section called, I just think of it as seven. It's the seventh chapter 
though it's not really written in chapters, mm. but I, yeah, seven, it's so brilliant. We talked about that. Yeah. But I wrote it with I was sick. I never get sick, but I got sick, mm-hmm. and I got a fever. And I should have been in bed, and I said, no, I'm going to write, and I've got to start seven, and I know what it's going to be like. Huh. And, and Catherine was like, okay, well, if that's what you want to do. So I, I went off, and I sat down and started writing, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, and the fever got worse. And so when it was all over with, and I went back and looked at it, I was like, I couldn't have done this any better if I tried. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's it. That's it perfectly. And it was just written in not quite delirium, but um, I was, it's like... I know I did all those words on purpose in that order. I don't quite remember why, but I mean, that's absolutely raw. Nothing got polished. Yeah. Um, that all came out. That's what I wrote. It was stunning. In the fever. I, I was so, I mean, I can't even describe to you how much I thought it meant so much to me, and I was sure mm. that book was a piece of crap. Mm. And Peter was one of the first people who ever saw it, and I think the thing he said. I'm tooting my own horn, but I think the thing he said was, I've never read anything like this before. Exactly. And he also it. mentioned, and when you put those two mm. things together, I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, I really tried to pull all the armor away in that book. The other thing, the other um, moment when I might have been useful to you, Caitlin, in the, in the making of that book had to do with the very, with the actual ending. With the bits gone mm. oh, at the end, you saved me. Yeah, but <laughs> um, and the only reason I could do it is I knew that impulse so well. I I still want to go back and write, you, Jonathan. You know the back pages section. Yeah. Yes. At, after it was finished, and actually, my partner Sonia, uh, my my partner Catherine, and a friend Sonia were both there editing the novel and Two Worlds and in Between hmm. while. I was still writing back pages, <laughs> and I think almost done. And I'd show up with another stack of pages. Yeah. Um, that section was planned. I just couldn't stop writing. That's and once right. I started writing back pages, I kept thinking of more and more things. And then I sat down when that was done, and I wrote a long piece about another of my artists that keeps coming up, um, <laughs> Albert Perot. <laughs> And it's sort of like, finally, I wrote the story about the death of Albert Perot. And, um, and oh, God, it, I, I love the piece, but it had no business being in the book. And it's long. There's a lot of French. It's set in France. It's, <laughs> it's, and, and Peter said, um, Peter wrote back and said, good God, get this out of the book. You know, there's just. <laughs> And, and I think because it even talks about we, we, we both did something for a Jeff Vandermeer project called Last Drink Bird. Yeah, yeah. that's made, right. I made that a painting by Albert Perot. <laughs> so the section deals with Last Drink Birdhead. And you were like, and what the hell is Last Drink Birdhead? Right there because it was ridiculous. And I, I was like, stop it. Just stop it. Yeah. <laughs> And was all that supposed to go after what's currently the end of the book? Well, yeah. Yeah. So, so basically we got to the July 2011 entry, which ends on the perfect line for the book to end on, and then you kept going? Yeah. <laughs> oh, what a good thing you did, Peter. It, it, that book needed to finish where it, this book needs to finish where it finished. It really did. Um, I, I, this moment, I, I'm probably one of the world's 
few people who gets frustrated with the Lord of the Rings, and there, there are no real analogies between the Lord of the Rings and this book that I would make, particularly other than this one. And that is, I get frustrated that the Lord of the Rings has three endings on the end of it. I'm not a great fan of that. And the fact, I, I, I began, I, w- once right. we hit the back pages, I'm kind of going, where are we going? Then I began to see where it was, and then I realized that in the closing line of the last back page entry, you give us the entire emotional resolution of the book. I thought so. And like you huh. can, I think you can probably see the similarity with. I, I don't want to spoiler. No, 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 not at all. You can see what happened with that and Tidal Forces, and how it differs from a lot of what mm. I've written, mm. and how it differs violent differs violently with the Red Tree. Mm. Um, you know, you know, going into the beginning of the Red Tree that the narrator's dead, that she's committed mm-hmm. suicide, um, which is one of the grimmest and and most, I think, most. Um, I don't know. I don't want to say ballsy. One one of those things, you know, you're saying right up front, you know, screw you. You're about to read a story by a dead person, and people mm-hmm. get. And while Sunset Boulevard is one of my favorite movies, mm-hmm. people get pissy about that stuff. Um, but no, the the piece that Peter convinced me it didn't take much to cut out mm-hmm. was actually in between the false bottom ending and the real ending. Mm-hmm. It was stuck in as an afterthought, mm-hmm. and, and it like bloated. <laughs> uh, well, it's wonderful to be so in love with the book you're doing that you really do not want it to end. You know that its ending is going to be a tremendous uh, loss. You're, you're going to feel immense grief because God knows you'll ever feel that close to anything ever again. Right. And so you, you just you you keep writing. It's melting all the way out. And um, I've, I've, I've done that myself from time to time with books uh, that I was completely wholly invested in. And I knew exactly what was happening with Caitlin. And I and I, and I, I, I knew when it was beautiful and when it stopped being beautiful and I had to, had to go. Well, you've right. also taken whole novellas, like like a special place. Yes, well, that's, that's something else, yeah. And just just and pull them out. Yeah. I know the um, dirty secret about The Drowning Girl is I wanted to write, a, I think it was a 175,000 word, uh, word novel. Hmm. And the whole second ghost story mm-hmm. was going to be written out in its entirety. Hmm. And my... Um, my editor said, no, we got to cut this off at like 100,000 words. And I said, no way. I said 125,000. She said 150. It was like an auction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, my God. So what, part of what is up with seven is I had to compress about 50,000 words into about 15,000 words. Oh, my words. God. And that's how I managed doing it. Um, the whole Jeez. Albert Perot half of the story as opposed to the salt and stall half i had to do something with because it was necessary but i dealt with it surrealistically the funny thing is i kept thinking there was more to albert pearl i mean well there hardly was the name i mean well he and, and if you go through and read the short fiction he's all over the place mm-hmm. um there he first i don't even know the story he first shows up and but he's in a lot of my what i think are my best stories and he's just always this or his artworks at the oh, center yeah, he's mm-hmm. off yeah, to the, the side the, the, by the way when is the second volume of of the best upcoming out in 2014 some in, theoretically wow. in 2014 sometime okay um i have wow. to put it together and edit it and it's going to be huge and and, and huh. i'm kind of looking forward to it it's going to be the one that i, I like all of yeah it was hard 
Um, because at least a third of those stories I really don't like any. I really well, don't like any. I like the first. I'm violently in hate with a lot of those stories. <laughs> there were stories. I still like a lot of them. And, and I respect it. I mean, I keep telling people, you know, if you still think Silk's a great novel, well, that's cool, and I mm. love you for that, but I hate it. <laughs> and there were stories that Bill and I would, would haggle over and say, okay, well, I'll let you know that story in if you'll put this story in. Mm. Um, from cabinet 34, drawer 6, I didn't want in at all, and it had never been collected, and Bill was like, that has to go in. So mm. that's in. Mm. And it cost me like three stories I love. Oh, boy. I bargained for other things to go in. Yeah, 2014. Listening to you talk about the stuff that you love now and don't love now, I've got to ask, do you feel like you were, by circumstance or whatever else, almost forced to learn how to do what you do in public? So there's things which ideally would sit in a drawer somewhere as early work, uh, your early attempts at things that you'd rather see quietly disappear? I think you just said something in a way I never thought of it before. Um, and on the one hand, you know, I didn't want to become a writer. I wanted to do another thing with my life, but that didn't happen for many reasons I'm not going into. But I did have to, I did have to hit the ground running when I realized that the only novel I wrote, not knowing I'd ever be a published writer, was The Five of Cups, which is an absolutely nasty, horrible, lousy, crappy, no one should ever read it ever. <laughs> and sadly, it got published. And, uh, and no. And, and, and it's cool that it's out there. But and, and then I wrote Silk, and I got better, thanks to Kathy Koja. Mm-hmm. And then, it's like every novel I got better. But I talked to people, and they talk about trunk novels and trunk stories. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what is a trunk novel? What's a trunk story? Mm-hmm. I don't have any of those. I only write things when people ask me to write stuff, because I need to get paid for it. So, um, yeah, I had to learn in public. That's a good way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Was And it's scary as hell learning in public. Learning to write comics in public under... You know, following Neil Gaiman, mm-hmm. um, and and that went really badly too. Few people realize how horrible those six years were. Yeah. Um, to nobody liked the comic. The sales kept plummeting. Mm-hmm. Of course, sales across the board for all comics. Plummeting. Um, now I'm doing a comic book, mm. Nancy Flamarian character, mm. and it's doing very well. And the, everybody mm. loves it. Everybody loves it. Um, That's right. Mm, yeah. That's- so I discovered I went away from it for ten years. I don't hate comics. I just hated comics that aren't mine. <laughs> <laughs> we, did, did, well, we're doing fine. Uh, we're, we're probably got another five or ten minutes. Or ten, ten minutes to go. I do have a question. With with the way it went through historically, did doing that make you fearless in the, uh, about your writing in the sense that? Um, you learn in public. You, you're only writing when people ask you to. So you are writing as fast as you can in a way where it's going out into the world. And you just have to do stuff and not sit there and be afraid of, well, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can do that. I'm just going to push forward. Well, I won't say I ever wrote as fast as I could because it took me like five years to write Silk. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, you just have to keep going. And I'm not a reviser. I rarely write second drafts of anything. Mm-hmm. 
um, which drives my editors crazy, but I just don't know how to write second drafts, and I can't even explain that to people. I don't understand how people write second drafts. It was so hard the first time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I think it was great motivation. Um, Neil recently said to me, you know, the one thing you got from the dreaming was it taught you to be a professional. Yeah. And I think a lot mm. of those things in the mid and late taught me, you know, in, in public and in, in business to be a professional. Yeah. Um, that's one thing I carried away from it. Okay. I think that, I mean, to some extent, that's familiar with people who are science fiction and fantasy writers of an earlier generation. Yeah. When you talk to Harlan Ellison and Robert Silverberg, having to sell a half million to a million yes. words a year. Simply to pay the rent. I mean, and mm. of course, concerned that they're, they're only concerned that they get a check. Right. That's all it comes down to. And now, mm -hmm. you know, distinguished elder statesmen. Of course, mm. of course, their apprentice work is out there, and it's it's nothing that they take a great deal of pride in. But they, I, take, they take a great deal of pride in having made a living. Yeah, I, I want to make it right. really clear that I'm never. I try, I try really hard not to be a hack. There are times I call myself a hack, there are times I think of myself as doing hack work, but I'm constantly working not to do that. Yeah. Every time I write for Serenia Digest, every time somebody asks me to do a short story, um, it's like, this has to be the new best thing I've ever done. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think it's a, almost in a very unhealthy way to be. When you have, when that's the sole source of income, you have to do it. The bills have to be paid, and you're not best-selling writer. So you have to write. Well, how do you do that? You write three times, four times more. Whoa. How when, how long has it been now since your first novel, your your very first publication ever? Oh, well, my first publication was a poem in in in, in 1960. Seven or something like that. <laughs> this novel's to nineteen seventy. My first publication ever was a a freshman essay um, in nineteen eighty four. Huh. Okay. So and then and then in nineteen ninety two I started writing my first novels. So. <sighs> but you kind of Peter, you like I wouldn't say lucked out, but you had three well-respected novels, and then hit a gold mine with your fourth. Yeah. And most people don't do that. No, I know. And as John Clute said in the thing in the souvenir book, I think, especially Julia, I think these are underrated novels. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, good. I, I think, I remember, I think Marriages, I got you to sign at Nikon. You're like, where did you find this mm, thing? Uh, we don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I'm, and see, you're back to that thing. I mean, they're by Silk. Yeah. But come on, Clive Barker did illustrations for it and, <laughs> and all this stuff. And, and oh, it was Tells of Pain and Wonder you wrote the after report. I did, yeah. yeah. But is it, like, when you talk about worrying about being a hack, and I hear that from science fiction writers and fantasy writers, the only people who worry about that are people who've been sort of corralled into a genre. Yeah. You, you, you yeah. don't hear people selling stories, to, even people who write stories, I don't know, just good housekeeping still publish fiction. No, I don't think so. Or whatever. But you don't find any mainstream writer worrying worrying about being a hack, because That's there's not funny. the option of being a hack no. in the genre. No. Huh, isn't that odd? Do we get back to that idea, that the idea of the fiction of ideas? 
Oh. Or, or is it not about ideas, it's simply about the quality of the writing? I mean, it's about the quality of the writing. I, I think so, too. I don't think it that much. I know I'm not going to come up with a lot of original ideas. Um, actually, Bill Schaefer actually came right out one time and said, you're just not an idea person. <laughs> He'll do okay. that. You I'm should like, have thanked him. I'm like, I love you, Bill. I <laughs> do love you and you know it. But, yeah. um, <laughs> I, I don't think of myself that way. It's like, come on, someone's written this. Yeah, Somewhere I never have ideas. Um, but I'm trying. I th I think the writers uh, who used to write for McCall's Good Housekeeping, Saturday Evening Post, those things, I, there are plenty of those people who were hacks. Who were hacks. Yeah, and but they were writers. You know, I, I don't know, Alexander Botts, Earthworm Tracks. Exactly, yeah. Um, and I don't remember who that is, but yeah, they were they were. Hard-working uh, uh, yeah. hacks, and but there, but there were there were markets for them. Those markets are gone. The only mark, the only place you can be a hack anymore, it seems to me, yeah. is in science fiction, fantasy, it's romance, or, paranormal, or crime novels, yeah. crime novels. But but why is it that we seem to value then somebody who's not prolific over somebody who is? It seems a very strange kind of a criteria to use you know the fact that somebody is actually able to produce a lot of work at a, at a high standard you know shouldn't automatically see them labeled a, a hack i mean i remember seeing an interview with ian banks some years ago where they said well you know obviously you are a serious writer it takes you some years to write a new book and the, you know, at one point there was a couple of years going by between a book and he said no i just made enough money off the books that i can kick around and do nothing i could write a lot faster if i wanted to and now he is uh, I also saw a similar kind of a comment with John Irving, I think, where he gets a book out every three years. And it's like, no, no, for a couple of years I sit around and do nothing, and then I write a book because I can. A mockingbird and never write another book. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, oh, it didn't make Harper Lee happy, I don't that's think. A really, I mean, I think that's a really fascinating question. Um, I don't know, I don't have any idea why, and it's certainly not fair. Um, yeah. Well, there are there are writers, and I suppose we all know. I mean, we, we've talked about, for example, um, well, Ted Chang is a good example in science fiction. Mm -hmm. No intention of making a living as writers. They, oh, Ted will write what a story a year at that. Um, and I'm pretty sure that even when Flannery O'Connor was selling stories to the yeah. Saturday Evening Post, she was not thinking, "I'm going to make a living as a short story writer." Right. Hmm. Um, so, a, it is no a hellish. I'm my point of view is it's a hellish existence and when people I rarely talk about writing I won't teach about writing mm. you know I turn this sort of stuff down and um, and because I mean what am I going to do except get up there and say if you if you love what if you love your writing don't do this <laughs> you know the, the whole the whole joke about because it keeps coming up about the platypus um, is I made a joke somewhere in the blog years ago about, you know, writing is like, you know, tarting your, your pet platypus up um, and, and sending it out to be a street walker. Mm -hmm. And in the end, you know, you just have less respect for your platypus. <laughs> like, you know, the writing is my platypus. And, um, and, and I do still love my writing, but sometimes I just want to pick up God. Every day, I want to pick up the. I wish I could say my incredibly cool antique royal typewriter that's in the book trailer and mm. throw it out the window. Mm -hmm. But no, it's it's my iMac. I want to pick it up and throw it out the window and, and go to the beach and never look at the damn thing again. <laughs> um, because it, I don't love writing, and it's and it's not like 
God, was it Flannery O'Connor that said, I don't love writing, I love having written? Mm. Oh, I don't think it was I don't her. think it was, but wait, that's so familiar. Yeah. Terry, Terry Pratchett? Pratchett Terry Pratchett said that? that? He might have upset it first. Someone, someone else said it. Yeah, someone else I didn't that's trust, though. What? <laughs> most people don't want to. Well, actually, Stacy was just pointing out that Terry Pratchett had said that most people don't want to write. They want to have, have Yeah. I think people have no idea how hard this job is. No, they, they really I don't. I didn't. I had I thought, hey, this will be easy. Yeah, right. It's like, yeah. um, you know, having spent years working as a scientist, it's like, well, it was hard. You know, and I would sit out in 110 degree chalk gullies doing excavations, but this is a whole lot harder. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd rather be dehydrated and a snake bite. Working for Dark Horse, since they're on the Pacific, they're in the Pacific. It's like, well, not literally in the Pacific, but mm -hmm. yeah. At eight o'clock at night, I can get a big bunch of pages to have to to go over and, mm. and correct art and, and mm. do stuff. So it just never ends. I get up, I write, I write, I write, I write. I go to bed, I write, I write, I write. Mm. So if I get this right, you love your writing, but you hate writing. It's hard mm. to describe it. Mm. I, I don't, I don't love my writing. I won't say. You I would say. God, how do you say this without someone can ask? I I believe that when I am not writing badly, I can appreciate having written well. I can say, Caitlin, you wrote that well. Mm -hmm. I do not love having written any more than I love mm -hmm. writing. I never read something. It's virtually never that I read something I wrote. Hmm. Um, an example of the the comic series I'm doing right now, Alabaster. It wasn't until the fourth issue, the third issue, I went back and actually read it printed. Um, I have I don't read short stories that come out in anthologies. I just don't read my work once I'm done writing it. I never read the novels over unless I'm mm -hmm. having to for a new edition. Yeah. Um, because I don't want to go there again. I did it. I've been. Yeah, that's right. Now, I read. I'll read Ghost Story or I'll read House of Leaves ten times. Yeah. Because I'm in love with those words and those ideas. They're not mine, and I can't be in love with those. But And there was a time in college where I could look at something I'd written and say, my God, aren't you clever? Mm -hmm. And I, I haven't been able to do that for 15 years. Huh. Now I know the life. And it's uh -huh. and if you're out there listening to this and you think it's all it's a romantic thing, it's you know, it might happen to somebody, but it didn't happen to me. I don't think that she would mind my repeating this, but I remember when I was at, in, in, in Seattle at, at one of the Clarion workshops, and Connie Willis was greeting the students because they were there for the local. And she was greeting dewy-eyed students on the very first day at Clarion, and they were the big luncheon, and the locust words were about to be given out, and there were famous writers there, and she said, "Welcome to Clarion. Today is the high point of your career." <laughs> I don't understand why people pay so much money to go to writing workshops. Mm. I, I never did either. I, I never got it. that. It's like I did not. No one ever taught me to write. I had. I, I did take three. I took three nightmarish semesters of creative writing in college, 
where I finally left in the middle of the third semester because the writer, the, the instructor and I were just about to come to blows. <laughs> and, I, and I put the whole thing aside and didn't get back till I, till I wrote The Five of Cups. And I don't know if he was right or if he was wrong. It didn't matter. No. Um, but I would never, you know, I taught myself to write. And I mostly did yes, it by yeah. reading and by writing. And so why do you have to pay someone a whole lot of money to learn uh, write? And the points of view of people who don't write as well as you do. Yes. About well, that never made sense to me at all. It's like, wait a minute. And, and this is, a, I'm not even really talking about Claire. talking about this, as you used to see in Publishers Weekly. I mean, um, creative Reader's Digest. If you can draw I'm just No, Writer's Market. Writer's Market. Yeah, writer's Market writer's writer's magazine. Yeah. And it would be like, well, you've never heard of me in your life, but for $1,000 a month, I'll teach you to be a best-selling writer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I just, in, a, in a defense of Clarion, which I've never been to or taught at, uh, what I hear about a lot of it is... If people come in who know how to write, yeah. they can teach you things like simply the business, like what an agent is, what a contract important. is, mm. you know, that kind of stuff. That is incredible, and I think there's far too little attention on, I mean, God, oh, Harlan and Ellison, is, one thing Harlan taught me was you've got to be a business person, mm -hmm. and mm. I'm a lousy business person even when I try, and so I have people mm. who are business people for me, mm -hmm. um, because I'm just good at that sort of thing. But yeah, and... and and man, there are fantastic people who have talked at Clarion. Um, I think Kelly Link has talked to yeah. for a minute and a half. And it's yeah. not that, that's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just, no, I, mean, the, the, I, think, I think most of the teachers would say, no, you cannot take somebody who has no talent and, and make them to teach. You can't. On the other yeah. hand, the MS creative writing courses you get in school, as Peter says, are frequently taught by learned how to teach creative writing from other people who learned, learned how to teach creative writing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they they, they 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 give credentials to each other. Mm. There's some of that. And it's like you know, my my creative writing instructor in college had sold a few stories to literary mm. journals. Mm. And when I got my first writing Damn. check, I so and I think this is in a Stephen King book. I so wanted to photocopy it and send it to him. <laughs> and just revenge. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that would so, yeah. <laughs> well, I think we're coming to the end of our hour, or in fact, just a little bit over, and I'm sure you guys have parties to get back to and bars to get into and people to talk to. But I want to thank you both so much for joining us uh, this weekend. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, Peter, back for your fourth time on the podcast. And Caitlin, I hope we might see you again on the podcast sometime in the future or at a convention or something. But thank you both very much for being with us. Thank you, too, Jonathan. And, well, soon. <laughs> we will talk soon. We will indeed talk soon, as we always do. Maybe tomorrow, maybe when you're back in sunny Chicago. Exactly. <laughs> but for that, thank you very much, and Chicago. talk to you again. Talk to you again.